Welcome to the Northern Business Podcast. Each week, we'll be talking to people active in business and the economy about the big issues driving growth in the north of England. We're sponsored by Virtu Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtumotors.com. I'm Graham Robb, owner of Recognition PR. We help scores of businesses promote their products and their services, and some are featured on this podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. In the studio today, we have John Elliott, chairman of EBAC, the manufacturer of heat pumps and dehumidifiers, as well as being the only manufacturer of UK washing machines. In the studio, we also have Pat Cambridge, an innovation and growth specialist who supports innovative businesses from a wide range of sectors to grow and scale further. And down the line, with Katie Moss, Managing Director of Trent Refractories, a Scunthorpe-based and family-owned manufacturer and supplier of bespoke refractory solutions, and she supplies the UK market and beyond. So a great team today. Katie, welcome down the line. I'm looking forward to coming to you later because I'm going to ask them Thank you. what's refractory. I'm sure people will want to know more. John Elliott first. We are live on Wednesday and we'll, people watching and recording this will know that we haven't quite seen all of Rishi Sunak's remarks about um, the what he calls pragmatic and proportionately changing the pace of the net zero policies. But what we have established is that he is going to change the way in which gas boilers are uh, affected. So plans to stop new build properties being fitted with gas boilers beyond 2025 are being pushed back 10 years. If you want to you have your own property and you want to replace your gas boiler, you can replace it with a gas boiler. But if you want to do, replace it with something like a heat pump, which you manufacture, uh, he will offer an increased grant uh, of £7,500 and he won't require you to have insulation. What do you make of those changes? I think they're both good steps, actually, because there's no doubt at all that air source heat pumps are the, energy, the heating system of the future. They're very energy efficient, very good carbon footprint. So, and it's better if people want to buy it because it's a good product rather than the government forcing them. I believe new builds, it's, an autom- it's a no-brainer because new, the cost of fitting it in an existing home is quite expensive. In a new home, it's much cheaper. So I think we'll find new houses of heat pumps because it's the right thing to have because it's an efficient heating system. Sunak's critics will say that by stopping the regulation, he's stopping, you've got to have a carrot and a stick and the regulation was the stick and he's just increased the size of the carrot. Well, yes, but you see, we've got to, people got to want to buy it because it's the right thing to buy, not because the government dictated. And it is. It's the heating system in the future. We've developed one that's extra efficient, more efficient than any other heat pump in the world at this point in time because of design. So that means for every kilowatt you put in, you get four kilowatts out. So it's just more energy efficient. If we use gas to produce electricity, it would take two kilowatts to make a kilowatt of electricity. That one kilowatt could do four kilowatts of heating. So, so, should, so it, it, heat pumps will become the heating system of the future, no doubt about it. There are many urban myths about them, and they're totally wrong. Okay, well, I won't go into the urban myths because that's for another uh, day. But um, when you look at Sunak's changes, I, I can see the logic in them myself. I'm relatively supportive of them myself. But the, the opposition of it would say, if you look at manufacturers, particularly motor cars, because he's also changing the date at which the diesel and uh, uh, petrol cars are banned by five years. The argument is being put that manufacturers like yourself and car manufacturers have already put their business plans in based on known dates of regulation. And that by changing the landscape, 
he's making it difficult for business. What, what's your view on that? Well, it's more difficult, but business and people are resourceful. You know, and I'd rather something driven by the market that makes sense rather than forced mm. by a government dictator. Mm. And I think that's what we're doing now. I think heat pumps will become the heating system in many applications. Not so, in some ways not suitable. Right. And now your own business has developed these and uh, it's clear that when you look at, say, solar panels, another different source of energy, all of those are imported, aren't they? They're that's right. Made that's right. In, in, in Britain. And you look at batteries, although batteries are made here, the raw materials are imported. But you are actually making this product here. And you, Have you uh, started the production line yet? Where that's are right. You? We're doing our very first production batch starting tomorrow, actually. Right. Uh, and then we'll build up from there. The product's fully designed. It's gone through all the uh, tests and everything. It's ready to go. It's a good product. We've tried to make it energy efficient first. Second, we've tried to make it easy to understand and not complicated, make it simple to install, because that's an issue as well, installation. We've tried to deal with all the issues that are there. And I believe it is the heating system of the future for most for many applications, not everyone. Now, obviously, you're, you're keen on it, but it's a very low scale at the moment. For, That's for right. Oh, yes. What, what kind of numbers oh, no, no. are you going to have in the first couple of years? Oh, I think, I think we'll get to 50,000 pieces a year um, and even more than that. Because the European market, for example, there was 2 million heat pumps installed in Europe last year. In the UK, there was 60,000. Mm. There was 600,000 in France. We're behind the curve. We're the second lowest in, uh, density of heat pumps in the Europe. Uh, there's only one country lower than us, and that's Luxembourg. And so that, that means the scope here to develop it. Mm. Uh, but it, it should develop because it's the right thing for customers, not because the government insists on it. And we've got to bring Pat in a minute, but there's a nice segue between you because uh, this week mm. you have brought some European uh, visitors over, I think, from Norway, from yeah, memory. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that visit to your factory and what were they saying about the product that you're making? Well, Norway, of course, Scandinavia, you see pumps a lot. Even though it's a cold country. That's right. You see, I think where people get mixed up is heat pump takes heat out of the air outside. And people imagine at minus 10, there's no heat in the air. Not true. It can be as low as minus 200 degrees, 270 degrees centigrade. So it, it, it's the differential, not where the That's right. It's called the worst. Yeah. But there's heat in there. And what a heat pump does, it takes heat from the air and raises the temperature and puts it in as heats the water. And all you're paying for is the cost of the that change, you're not producing energy. That's why you can get more kilowatts out than you put in. Mm. So what was the visit like from Norway? Very good. It's very, um, yeah, people are always impressed by it. It surprises me that actually. But we are quite uh, vertically integrated, which surprises people. Not only do we assemble things, we also make the plastic parts and the metal parts and even build our own printed circuit boards. So we're very vertically integrated. And that always surprises people because we're relatively small. Mm. Um, and, the, and people are surprised at that. But we make it work. So it's a sort of trade visit. Now, Pat, you've been involved in the uh, British uh, Anglo Chamber of Commerce you're on the board of, yeah. and you organised a trade visit to northeast England, uh, to Teesside. Tell us about that, because that links in with this net zero agenda. Yeah, um, I, I actually I work in the UK, Edge, and one of the things we're trying to push is quite it's net zero for the northeast, particularly. That's where, particularly on Teesside, is where net zero is going to be replacing the steelworks and a lot of things happening with... Um, Ben Houchin's Tees Valley Combined Authority. Um, so we've actually organised the an event for the British Irish Chamber. Uh, Dublin has got a lot of people coming, but Cork and everything else. And there's about 60 delegates um, from the UK and from um, Ireland are going to come to actually matchmake. They've been to over hydrogen, carbon capture. There'll be a circular economy. 
um, uh, and, and all the heat pumps all to do with solar. You know what are, what what do they want? And Ireland are a bit behind the behind the ball compared to the UK in net zero. So they're bringing across quite a lot of people and some policymakers to see what are we doing here. And the idea is to bring those people on the 28th of September. We'll go to the net zero centre in Middlesbrough and then do a tour of the northeast and what's happening in the different places mm. uh, and get a feel. It's a, it's a taster and uh, match, match, match make up. So you're showing off uh, good British innovation based in northeast England. Yeah. And tell me, now you've heard me tell, tell you about what Rishi Sunak has been saying while we've been chatting. Do you think that that policy change is going to be uh, seen as a radical departure? Is it going to take the edge off our uh, lead uh, in net zero? Or, or is that overstating? Are the commentators overstating? I think the commentators are overstating because what Rishi's always said, you know, the, the, the goal is 2050 and always has been. Uh, the plan was to do certain things. Back to what John says, the plan can't always say the plan. The plan has to change to be, you know, works for what the businesses do and what people want. Back to what Jonas says, you know, this is probably more incentive than actually more carrot than stick. So people will go that way for that. So, and hydrogen's another, you know, has to do with, with vehicles, you know, with the motor industry you mentioned there. It's like, you know, they're not ready. They're trying to push things, but not ready. And people are not, not buying the cars that they should be buying to get to, net to the requirements. So slow it down a bit. Have you, either of you bought an electric car? I, I drive electric car, but I haven't bought it. Somebody else has, but I've got it. <laughs> Tax incentives. Well, yeah, I mean, I, and the thing is that, you know, the people who drive electric cars, no disrespect, you know, are normally wealthy people who can get the incentives. So the man on the street, you know, it's a £45,000 car minimum mm. to get the incentives. Not everyone's got £45,000 minimum mm. to buy the car. It's the man on the street and the woman on the street who wants to drive that car, can't afford it at the moment. And then, John, well, what was your choice in car? I'm going to hybrid, but not uh, through battery. Uh, it's like the, one of these mechanical hybrids. Yeah, where it's two. quite clever, you see, because what I like about the hybrid is it recovers when you slow down. It, rather than braking, it puts the power back Correct. into a battery. Yeah. So it's it's virtual uh, motion almost. And my own team all choose electric because of the tax incentive. Yeah. Um, it does cost me as a business more to lease them, though, but that's another issue. And my own car is actually still diesel, so... But I think it's offset by my team's electric cars. Yeah, well, I, I think also is that, you know, the, the, the national insurance and the contributions, you know, you, you, if you can buy a BMW or a Mercedes at a certain price, you can buy a Tesla for a lot less and you get more money on. Yeah. So if people going to buy the car, absolutely. Let's move with Katie. You're down the line. You're in Scunthorpe at Trent Refractories. And look, it's great to talk to you. First of all, pick up on this issue of innovation and net zero because your business is right at the heart of it. What is a refractory and, and how does it make a, a difference when it comes to net zero? Um, well, because first of all, a refractory, for those that don't know, is um, in, a, in a simple form is, is a type of ceramic product, but it's, but it's essentially concrete that goes to um, very high temperatures. And it can be, it can be in, well, that's what we make. There's, there's other types of refractories in terms of fiber and things like that, but it's, it's a product that will go to high temperature that's a form of ceramic. Uh, we typically supply into... Um, kilns incineration uh we do a, a big user um of refractories is the steel industry and um in terms of leading the way in innovation i would say the refractories industry as a whole has been very very good for the last sort of 20 30 years at recycling its own products so although it's seen as a dirty kind of a dirty industry and we underpin actually all the foundation industries. So where you've got glass, um, cement, steel, um, those types, those industries, 
we they can't exist without us. So it's absolutely imperative for me that we sort of stay manufacturing in the UK and we keep that knowledge base here. But as part of that, even though it's kind of seen as one of the dirty industries, they've actually been innovating since um, since about the 80s using recycled materials. So in terms of how the industry appears on the face value, but but what it does in terms of its circular economy, it's kind of been leading the way for for a long time. Um, and but the, don't get me wrong, there's a long way to go, so, and there's there's certainly more high value ways of of um, uh, of making that better and and creating more circular economies for sure. But um, I know yeah, that, I think I it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. You're doing work in the north of England uh, to help industry in its 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 net zero uh, ambitions. Um, two examples, I suppose that. If if there were to be electric arc furnaces for the steel manufacturer, you'd probably be there fitting them out with this stuff. But you're also working in partnership with the Materials Processing Institute uh, to look and Canthal to explore hydrogen as an alternative fuel source. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so the um, MPI have managed to secure some government funding to look at this, and uh, we're currently in the early stages of determining what the project actually looks like. Uh, but we're looking at sort of how the um, effects of hydrogen are going to affect um, refractories, particularly uh, in the performance um, of how they're actually used. And and even from our perspective, um, the, there's the hydrogen pipeline coming in that's going to be coming through essentially Scunthorpe uh, in a few years' time. So. You know the the plan is obviously that British Steel will be powered um, in that way, and uh, but for us as a refractory producer, well, if we use hydrogen to dry our products, because um, if you can imagine, if it's like concrete and we're casting it as concrete, we will remove water from our uh, from our products prior to them going on a red hot furnace, because uh, as I'm sure you can imagine, that is not a good combination. Um, so when we we want to sort of investigate, well, how does drying with the use of hydrogen uh, affect our products? Is that going to extend the lifetime of our products? Has it, is it going to have no effect on our products or is it going to actually cause them to um, reduce their lifetime? Uh, so we're, we're looking at that's one element of it and we're just kind of looking to explore how we actually expand the scope of the project to to get something meaningful out of it. Now, Katie, one thing that you and John have in common is that your businesses were founded uh, as family businesses. Now, uh, I know that your father was the founder of Trent Refractories and you've taken over following his sad death. How is it uh, taking over a, a business that is so specialist and your father obviously had the founding knowledge as well? How easy was that for you? Um, well, <laughs> I, I suppose in t two words, cripplingly terrifying. <laughs> uh, it's um, a very, very steep learning curve, but a business is a, a business has common um, elements to it. You know, you need to be profitable. You need to be sustainable. All those, you know, all those things you need to listen to what your customers want and, um, and deliver and what your customers want and deliver a good service. Product, so it's obviously doing because you're innovating. Well, I think there's the, there was certainly a period of time where, you know, you, you take, you step in and at that point, the priority is to keep things going. 
and then you get you start to get to grips with what you actually do because it was very very specialist and and is uh, very specialist and still you know I employ technical people to tell me what is right and wrong I'm not a technical person um but there's this this kind of evolution of the business of um of securing it for today listening then to what the customers actually want are we actually delivering what they want refining then our proposition if you like and then trying to do good things to set ourselves apart from others and as the years have gone on um our industry institute uh, for for the as the first port of call keeping them it was important it was quite clear to me early on that we really needed to retain the skills for refractories within the UK so my first thing was even though I don't have those skills how can I have a positive effect um on our sort of institute uh our industry institute to make sure that we keep those skills so I spent quite a lot of time uh, helping that and and changing that for the future and then more recently because I've become this sort of super passionate person about being making stuff in the UK um I've joined the board of made in Britain uh the, the the trademark and you know listening um about these heat source pumps perfect that's that's what we need um in the UK and I've just heard over the last week or so that that the UK has actually overtaken France now um as for for its manufacturing which is um something I hadn't expected to hear but really really heartwarming and uh, we just need to keep building our own manufacturing supporting our own businesses and hopefully this grant that Rishi's giving uh, will help will help you and and your business grow and and help people do the right thing and that that's you know that's what we want isn't what, it how so how many people do you employ Katie um about 16 Right, so it's a small, so not a massive business. John, you, you, you obviously, I know you support Made in Britain. Absolutely, and, and we've a long way to go, though. We're not there yet. In fact, we've beaten the French. Is not a big, very high bar. We've got a long way to go. You know, we I still like it though. No, it's a, it's a very small step. Um, those in power don't realise actually that we've got to balance the books, and we only do that by making more things in the UK rather than importing them. We import them with money that we don't have. We borrow, you know, it's, we've just got to sort the basic economy out. We've got to make more things in the UK, not negotiable. Pat, this is obviously music to your ears. It, it is, yeah. I mean, interesting, both both speakers, both their businesses, are something the Innovate UK Edge, KTN and all the divisions would sponsor, help to grow, all that kind of stuff. I think that the government has realised that um, we're not going, SMEs are not going as big as they should be. So manufacturing and all innovative things where we are good at is they are going to, Put a load of people behind them. There's 330 people like me around the country. There's five in, in, in Teesside. There's about another 30 in Newcastle and, uh, and uh, Sunderland area. And there's some obviously in Hull and Scunthorpe. Their job is to roll, is to help businesses to scale and grow, find the right funding, find the right places, signpost them the support, scale them and seem to grow. Big program. Now, are you? It is Innovate is funded by the UK government. It is, yeah. Uh, what is it, Ronald Reagan said? There's no more terrifying phrase than "I'm from the government and I'm here to help." Yeah. Uh, so, but if, if you uh, if you do, if someone like John or Katie needs help from Innovate UK, Innovate UK, is it possible to engage with you? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, obviously we have capacity, but the thing is, we're we're not we're an agency. We're not a government. Mm. So, I work through Teesside University. 
and the guys I work with have all either owners of businesses or have been high up in their organization or still have their own business. So we, we get involved in that business. We do some growth businesses and we have some high growth individuals where we hand them up to scale up directors and they move at a pace. Looking at funding, looking at all the things that John's mentioned, also Kurt's mentioned, what is it we can try and do to help their businesses scale and grow? Export, import, all that stuff without stepping on the toes of the Department of Business and Trade. It's about innovation. All right. Well, look, there's some great examples of innovation on our yep, programme today. And thank you for telling us about your trade visit. And let's hope these Irish business people take away from North East England some of the uh, possibilities that they can apply yep. in Ireland as well. John, Katie, Pat, thank you very much. Now, if you'd like to join us as a guest on a Northern Business Podcast, you can tag my colleagues on my LinkedIn feed. Feel free to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Also, next week, join us for the podcast. Never miss an episode. Like, rate and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts.